The Tom Woods Show, episode 1695. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. All you men out there, remember, you get a close, smooth, comfortable shave every time without breaking the bank with the official razor of the Tom Woods Show, Harry's. Get a Harry's trial set delivered to your doorstep by going to harrys.com slash woods. Hey, everybody, Tom Woods here. I am joined today by Jonathan Newman, who is the last person on the faculty to be interviewed on The Tom Woods Show. He's the only person I have not yet gotten around to, and I am so glad because I am a completionist, and I'm not going to let people escape the Mises Institute without being interviewed on The Tom Woods Show. So, uh, Jonathan, welcome. Jonathan's an economist. We're going to talk about his background in just a minute. Glad to have you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. So I know where you teach, but they don't. So where do you teach? I teach at Bryan College, which is in Dayton, Tennessee, just north of Chattanooga. It's a small, private Christian liberal arts college in, in Tennessee. Is it drivable to here? Did you drive? Yeah, it was. it's about four hours driving. Oh, it's nothing at all. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. You do have to go through Atlanta, which is, you know, it's, it's getting more and more dangerous to, to travel through Atlanta these days. Oh, okay. Now you are, you look like a pretty young guy to me. Can I ask? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm 32. Oh, gosh. <laughs> not, I'm not, I mean, I suppose biologically I could be your father, just not very likely. <laughs> Let's just put it that way, but not be very likely. All right. So, sorry, youngish guy, how long have you been teaching? See, I started teaching at Auburn in the, I was a graduate teaching assistant. I think that was a 2012. They put me in the classroom by myself. Uh, and so ever since then, so it's eight years now. Jeez, man. You were teaching when you were but a pup. Yeah, it, it was actually, it was really good that they put the graduate students in the classroom because it allowed them to develop a lot of teaching skills really early on yeah. in the program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't do much of that when I was in grad school because uh, I, I wasn't really going out of my way to get positions as a teaching assistant because I thought, because I was doing, I had other jobs. I, I was working for a magazine and that was paying the bills much better. And also I thought, I'm in history. I mean, what skill does it take to teach history? It's not like people are sitting in the audience. I don't get it. What is there to get? This war happened. Shut up. You know, whereas, whereas with math or economics, it requires detailed explanation. You have to learn how to explain things in ways that aren't confusing for the, the general public. So I didn't think it really mattered. And then I went on the job market and they all want to know what my teaching experience had been. I thought, <laughs> but I worked in this magazine. Doesn't that matter? Isn't that impressive? So, so you obviously definitely did it the right way. So is this one of these colleges with a heavy teaching load? Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a 4-4 teaching load. And I, I usually take on some extra classes in the summer. Uh, but that's, that's what I prefer. I, I prefer uh, emphasizing teaching um, over research. I, I still, you know, try to do some research and some writing when, when the time permits, but I really thrive in the classroom. And, and my favorite part about teaching is the aha moment that you get from a student where they, they've been explained something many times before by somebody else. And then you figure out the way to express that idea in some way that it just clicks. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love that. That's a very satisfying. I mean, that gives me the kind of feeling that a comedian gets when he gets a big round oh, yeah. of, of laughter. You know, that you, you, you hit just that spot mm -hmm. and, and it and it worked out. So just for the sake of the audience who may not know the academic lingo, 4-4 four, four means you teach four courses in the fall oh, yeah, and yeah. four courses in the spring. That's right. So at a big research institution, what you'd be shooting for is 2-2. Two, two, mm -hmm. Or if you're the department chairman, it might be 2-1 or even 1-1, one, one, right. which is ridiculous <laughs> when you think about it, right? Yeah, yeah. They, yeah there are lots of... Uh, um, professors in very cushy positions. And of course, if you take on administrative duties, then you get an even softer load sometimes. And so 
And so they 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 get an even further break from the classroom. So, are you guys doing in person instruction this fall? We're we're aiming for it. Everything that I've heard from administration is that they're going to go for in person instruction with smaller class sizes, and they've changed the the schedule up a little bit. But yeah, okay. that's the plan. Okay, all right, that's good. Now, so now that we're going to transition into some economics. What would be the typical four courses that you'd be teaching at any one time? Well, I'm a I'm professor of economics and finance, so I also teach some finance classes um, in the in the business program at Bryan. Uh, but the econ courses that I teach typically are principles of micro, principles of macro. I like to do money and banking when I get a chance, and other electives like history of economic thought. Okay, what's your absolute favorite thing to do? Teach. I, I really I really like principles of macro because I like showing the history of thought of macro and comparing the the different frameworks that we've discussed here at Mises U this week, uh, like putting the Keynesian model up against the Austrian model and up against the monetarist way of doing things and and students like to I try to turn it into a debate somewhat so that students can try to figure out which framework does a better job of explaining the the economy. Okay, so. This year, you gave a lecture on business cycle theory, Austrian business cycle theory, which is a lecture that's been given for years, or up to last year at least, by the eminent Roger Garrison, mm-hmm. who is retired now from Auburn, who wrote uh, Time and Money, which is a, a, a treatise on Austrian capital theory, and he's been known for his notorious PowerPoint presentation oh, on Austrian business cycle theory beautiful. and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even complete with sound effects mm-hmm. and everything. And uh, I, I absolutely love that guy. I could never get him to come on the podcast. Every oh. time it would turn to that, somehow he'd change the subject and whatever. But he was he's a really, really smart and gracious and good guy. So you had some big shoes to fill. Yes. I, I, I think in, in it was 2009 was my first Mises University. And it was Roger Garrison's lecture on Austrian business cycle theory that was sort of my aha moment. I wasn't an econ major at, in my undergraduate uh, program. But when I came here in 2009 and I saw this lecture by Roger Garrison, I saw the moving graphs and and the hilarious jokes in there. I, I, it was just beautiful to me. And that's where I decided I'm going to come to Auburn and study economics. This is what I want to do the rest of my life. And so this week has been sort of like a, a complete circle for me to finally have the chance to to give this talk that inspired me to, yeah, to study economics. Yeah, that is amazing. Did you ever tell him that? I I, I can't remember I, I See, mean, this I, is the sort of thing that, that somebody in the educational profession wants to know, yeah, right? Yeah, that yeah. he did that for you. Well, I, I took his uh, principles of macro class at Auburn, and I was the annoying student that would always bug him after class and like want to walk with him back to his office and ask him questions and all that sort of thing. Yeah. So I, w- I was the Roger Garrison fanboy in, at Auburn. I also took a history of economic thought from him. It was just a, a pleasure to, to learn yeah, from him. Yeah, yeah, I bet, I bet. Okay. All right, so now I, it's true. You, you, we were talking about this beforehand. It's true that we've talked about the uh, Austrian theory of the business cycle before, but it, it's it's been a while and people could either use a refresher or for some new listeners, they could stand to know it. Because I think, I really think understanding the business cycle is some of the most important economic knowledge people can have, especially in an age when central banks are more and more unmoored from what even the textbooks teach about what central banks ideally ought to be doing according to their own principles. So, so I do want to talk about that and make sure at the beginning that everybody understands when we say Austrian, we're talking about a school of thought within economics, so named because its early theorists came from Austria. So we're talking about the school of thought that includes Mises and Hayek and and Rothbard and then earlier on Menger and Bombavik and so on. So that is the tradition of thought that is being taught and preserved and built upon here at the Mises University program, which is the program that basically turned me 
into a member of the Austrian school all the way back in 1993. So this has been going on for a long, long time, deserves your support, as does everything the Mises Institute does. So how do you, when you have to explain to the general public what the Austrian business cycle theory says, and you know you don't have all day to explain it, what's your kind of elevator pitch for it? Probably the easiest way to, to grasp it is to contrast the boom-bust cycle with sustainable economic growth. So sustainable economic growth can only happen by, you know, setting aside resources for production. We have to save first. And that that's what allows entrepreneurs to take those saved resources and expand production. And it's all sustainable. And and entrepreneurs are correctly responding to what consumers are, are doing in terms of saving and consuming. So we contrast that sort of uh, framework, that way of thinking about economic growth with the boom-bust cycle in which entrepreneurs are sort of tricked. There's, they, it looks like there are saved resources, but there actually aren't. And the the trick or the, the disguise comes from credit markets where the central bank or the fractional reserve banking system has increased the supply of loanable funds. The interest rate is pushed below the normal rate. And, and so entrepreneurs expand production in such a way that isn't in accord with what consumers have actually said. And that and that's why it's unsustainable. Was that short enough? No, that was pretty good. Now, that's a very Garrisonian approach because I remember in his presentation, he said, and I think here he might have been appealing to Hayek when he said that in order to understand why things go wrong, we first have to understand why they could ever go right. Yeah, yeah, that's a Hayek quote. Yeah, yeah. And so to understand the role that the rate of interest plays is key to understanding what breaks down because when the rate of interest is allowed to perform its function, it is, uh, you know, it is in effect alerting entrepreneurs to certain things. It's, it's making clear that you know, it, it tells them something about people's preferences and not just what they want to consume, but when they want to consume right, it. Right. And so getting this time dimension right is very important because it, it influences the kind of, not just the amount, but the kind of investments they make. Now, you can tell me if you think this analogy works, but I've tried to get people to see the role that lowering interest rates can play by having them think about their own 30-year mortgages. Because let's say you had, um, you know, when you have a, when you have a, let's say a one-year mortgage, well, you know, most of those payments are going to be principal. Mm-hmm. The, the, the interest rate is not going to play a huge role there. But if that loan is extended for 30 years, you know, because you've looked at the, the, the your statements, that the first years of paying that mortgage, it's almost all interest. Yeah, it's, it's, it's painful sort of, to yeah, see how yeah, little progress painful, yeah. <laughs> you're making against that giant loan. And so when you're dealing with a 30-year payment and the interest rate comes down even slightly, it can make a, a very significant impact on your life. And so likewise, when when interest rates are sort of artificially pushed down, it can make artificially or real, it makes entrepreneurs think, well, now I can more afford that longer term project. I can afford to finance that longer term project. So it makes them do different kinds of things, not just more of the same thing. Right. And uh, I I talked about business cycle theory with uh, Professor Salerno, who's in charge of Mises U here. And he, uh, he actually tries to uh, de-emphasize or take the focus off the, the interest rate as a number by itself, because it's not because somebody could respond and they could say, well, why don't just, you know, entrepreneurs wise up to this? Why don't they just realize, oh, uh, interest rates don't always reflect consumer time preferences. Um, and so Salerno talks about the the income effect, that the actual availability of funds is there for entrepreneurs to take. And the, the, that availability of funds does not reflect 
additional saved resources. So it's not just the interest rate. It's it's also just the sheer availability of brand new green slips of paper that didn't exist before. Right, right, right. So yeah. in fact, one of the in fact, I think this may have come from a lunchtime conversation I had with Joe years ago, where he was trying to put flesh and blood onto the theory to make it more understandable. And he was saying, let's think about a situation where things go right. And uh, let's say people save more, and as a result, interest rates come down. So when they save more, two things come from this. Number one, saving more means I'm not blowing my entire paycheck in the present immediately. I'm deferring some purchases for the future. Well, that is the moment for entrepreneurs to plan for the future, Mm -hmm. to invest for the future. So So there's a coordination there. But secondly, the fact that I'm saving means that resources that might be used to cater to immediate consumption are now released to be available for longer-term investment. So trucking services that would have shipped, you know, consumer goods, maybe they're available to ship uh, machine tool parts or something uh, at a higher level of production. So in other words, there's no tug of war with longer-term investment and shorter-term projects having a tug of war over the same resources. The resources naturally flow Mm -hmm. because from one, you know, stage of production to the other because they're not as needed for immediate consumer use. Whereas when things go wrong... And let's say uh, by things going wrong, I mean you have artificial intervention. You have the, the Federal Reserve or the Faction Reserve Banks artificially pushing interest rates low. Well, in that case, I'm not necessarily deferring my purchases. Mm-hmm. So they're going to get the wrong – entrepreneurs are going to get the wrong idea. And then secondly, now uh, because I'm not deferring my purchases, you have all these resources that are still dedicated to consumers. And now you've got all this long-term investment going on. They need the resources too, so they're having bidding wars over them. It's discoordination. Now, is there anything wrong with the way I describe that? Because I hope not, because that's how I've been explaining it to people oh, for years. Oh, no, no, that, that's, that's exactly <laughs> right. So what you've just described is the two key features of the Austrian business cycle theory, or at least the two uh, key features of the boom, which is uh, malinvestment. So entrepreneurs start uh, creating the, the wrong sorts of capital goods and investing in the wrong lines of production, and also overconsumption, which is probably what you emphasize most in that. So the overconsumption happens when consumers respond to the artificially low interest rates and the increased availability of of loans to expand their own consumption. So it's not it's not just the fact that consumers didn't say they want uh, longer term projects and or they want consumer goods in the more distant future is that they they've actually increased their consumption. So we actually have a deterioration of the capital structure. Uh, the capital structure by the way is We see in this discussion why the capital structure is so important for the Austrian business cycle theory, um, because we see you don't have that in the mainstream. You don't have this view of production taking time and capital being allocated in specific ways so that we get consumption goods at specific times. We in the mainstream view is just, you know, like one big letter K or one big aggregate K. And and you you miss out on all all of that sort of interplay. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll come right back. All right, folks, you guys all know that the official razor of the Tom Woods Show is Harry's and that all the cool people listening are all using them. Well, think about how much you could save in one year by switching to Harry's. Enough for three deep dish pizza dinners in Chicago, enough to pay six months of your Netflix subscription. I could go on and on. How? Harry's delivers high quality razor blades as low as $2 each, a fraction of the price of the leading brand, saving you hundreds of dollars over time. I'll tell you what I like about Harry's. I have a beard, it's true, but not on my neck, and the neck is the most sensitive area. And I use my Harry's razor on that most sensitive area, and it comes out looking and feeling great and close every single time. 
Harry's is a return to the essential, quality, durable blades at a fair price. It's super convenient with or without a subscription. Blade refills are delivered directly to your door on your schedule. Listeners of my show can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com woods. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel with aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go. Go to harrys.com woods to start shaving and saving today. I've talked to a number of different people who are in one way or another influenced by Austrian economics as investors. Now, that's a different kettle of fish entirely, right? I mean, having a feel for that world is not necessarily something that you get just from studying economics, pure economics. But I've had a guest on, I, maybe I won't mention his name just because I don't want to complicate it with personalities, but who says that he understands and appreciates and respects the Austrian theory of the business cycle, but he says he thinks it makes Austrians unnecessarily bearish for too much of the time because the central bank is always up to some shenanigans. And so he thinks that a lot of profit opportunities are missed by Austrian-informed investors because they're always waiting for the big crash to come, but there are a lot of great opportunities to be had in the immediate run. So do you, as a pure economics professor, have any instincts about that? Well, um, that's true to an extent. Um, and in fact, I've seen a few investment newsletters where the author is informed about Austrian business cycle theory, and the goal is is the timing. So, so there are profit there are profits to be had during the boom phase of the business cycle. If, if you understand Austrian business cycle theory, you might be wary, you might be a little bit more cautious than other people, but that doesn't negate the fact that you can earn profit during the boom phase. The trick, however, and it's actually something that economic theory can't provide, is is timing. It's knowing exactly when the the crash is going to happen. Yeah, and then also there's the question of obviously not everything gets wiped out in the in the bust. Some things will not only survive but thrive. And the question is, is there a way to get a handle on what those things will be? Yeah, it it takes um it takes a lot of uh, skill, I guess, to be able to have that sort of foresight. It's it's not something that I would say that I'm specialized in in saying or, or foreseeing. Uh, but you're right. So it's not like a total loss when we have the bust. There are certain capital goods, certain industries that are affected more than others. And in fact, there are certain counter-cyclical investment assets and counter-cyclical industries where you might, if you're informed about Austrian business cycle theory and you realize that there's a, a bust coming, then you might you know, start putting some of your money in those sorts of investments to to prepare. Well, and, and, then, and then too, that type of Maybe one example of that type of product, if we're if we're thinking on the same wavelength, was mentioned here at Mises U earlier this week, namely Spam, the Hormel company, because <laughs> Spam is a very big uh, recession style meat because it's inexpensive and it's got a lot. You know, I don't know. It has it has things to be said for it. I've never so much as considered eating it, <laughs> but. And then also because each each of these cycles, you see commonalities in it. You see the skeleton of the Austrian business cycle theory present in all of them. But the unique characteristic, there's always some unique characteristic it seems to be. So obviously with 2008, we had housing. And then a decade before that, we had the dot-com thing. And so the way Roger Garrison used to put it is that whatever the big thing is at the time, so maybe in the 20s, communications of some sort, uh, whatever the big thing is, will be kind of deformed and blown out of proportion during the, 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 the artificial boom. 
Yeah, the, the way the boom and the bust actually plays out depends on sort of the vagaries of history. What sort of things are people interested in? Probably most importantly is where is the government involved? So we saw uh, in the lead up to the, the housing bubble, we saw the, the federal government was encouraging lots and lots of home ownership. Yeah. Um, and so we can speculate what sort of things might be a bubble right now. And probably the best place to look would be what sort of thing is the is the federal government encouraging a lot of. Some people might mention uh, getting a, a new car. So there, there was the cash for clunkers program, but we've seen auto loans have increased. The, also, student loans. There's been lots and lots of uh, federal government encouragement for people to to borrow lots of money to go to college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we definitely have those things. So how does knowledge of the to me knowledge of Austrian business cycle theory is important because it's just it's just good to know how the world works rather than not to know. But it's also important for us to defend ourselves against accusations against the free market that oh just goes to show we leave you people to your own devices and look what happens we get this boom bust cycle right yeah so a lot of people they they pin the boom bust cycle and the financial crises on capitalism or the free market so this thing is so unstable obviously we have you know 100% pure free market now and so anything bad that happens is capitalism's fault um, but Austrian business cycle theory, it's, it's very logical and it, and it shows that no, it, there's nothing inherent in the unhampered market economy per se that, that would give rise to a, a boom bust cycle or financial crisis. Same with the, the different, uh, sorts of banking systems of full reserve banking versus fractional reserve banking. There's an article that somebody who uh, normally teaches here, Lucas Engelhardt from Kent State, uh, wrote about uh, trying to answer one of the objections to Austrian business cycle theory that you hit on earlier, which was that why don't entrepreneurs get wise to this? If if the Federal Reserve is artificially lowering interest rates, why don't they realize, okay, wait a minute, I better be careful here. I better tread really carefully and not be reckless. And there have been numerous replies to this. Um, and apparently Joe has his own kind of reply, but I can think of um, – you know, there's there's one there's like a prisoner's dilemma thing where there's there's an argument that if everybody else is expanding during the boom and I don't, then I'm going to suffer relatively to them. So I better jump into it, even if it's against my better judgment. But what Lucas said in his article was something like, "It's not that entrepreneurs become fools; it's that fools become entrepreneurs during this time." I mean, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, that makes that makes sense uh, to me. So what the artificially low interest rates do and what the expanded availability of loans does is that it, it not only do the existing set of entrepreneurs now have new projects that they can undertake but it also gets the those marginal entrepreneurs that might not be as good as their fellow entrepreneurs right. so so right. it gets those people to come in and participate in the the boom production exactly there's there's more credit available mm-hmm. and and Given that at any one time, now you're the banking expert, but it seems to me that at any one time, a bank to make as much profit as possible is lent out to the extent that it can find creditworthy borrowers. So in other words, if, if there's an additional injection of credit, by definition, any additional loans, therefore, are going to borrowers who were not of the original standard. Yeah, so th- that logic applies on, on the consumption borrowing side, so consumers who are borrowing, but also producers who would borrow. Yeah, same yeah. exact logic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there anything on this subject that you've written that is easily, that's not behind a paywall? 
I've written about Austrian Business Cycle Theory for Mises.org um, a few times. So if if somebody just searches for my name on the Mises. Well, I'll, I'll find it. Okay, I'll, I'll okay. put them on yeah, the, yeah. the show notes page, tomwoods.com slash 1695 is where we'll have some some stuff on this. Um, do you think there are any weaknesses in it? Is there any part of it that you wish we could shore up better? Well, I think that th- there there has been some unprecedented changes in, in central bank policy very recently, n- not just since the last um, financial, or I shouldn't say that anymore, the 2008, 2009 recession and, and financial crisis, but also just in the past few months, there have been some pretty uh, significant changes in the way the central bank does monetary policy. And I think I think that there's uh, some some room in the literature for us to make sure that what the central bank is doing is, is taken into account in Austrian business cycle theory. Uh, one, one good example of this is the central bank has started paying interest on excess reserves, which is a brand new policy that they didn't have before. And one effect of that is that new money, new bank reserves that enters the economy uh, doesn't necessarily leave the banking system. It doesn't necessarily come out and turn into malinvestment and overconsumption. And so that's something that we should take into account. Uh, Joe Salerno has a great paper uh, called Reformulation of Austrian Business Cycle yes. Theory, in which, in which he's he's taken into account some of these sorts of things. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to also link to that paper. It's I, a great really one. Do. Now, do you know, has that been published? It was a working paper when yes, I first yes, read it's, it. Yes, it's published. All right, I'll find it. I'll put it at tomwoods.com slash 1695. Do you have a faculty page uh, at your, uh, or do you have a website of your own or a faculty page over I, at Brian? Yeah, I have a faculty page at Brian College. Um, but in terms of if people are looking for things that I've written, the best place to go would be Mises.org. Okay. All right. I'll put your article archive up at tomwoods.com slash 1695. All right. Now we're going to uh, resume the program. So uh, thanks for your time, Jonathan. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. All right, everybody. That's going to do it for today. If you like this sort of topic and you're interested in more about the Federal Reserve in ways that the average person can understand that goes into more detail about the damage the Fed does and also answers some of the objections from the defenders of the Fed saying the Fed's actually a great thing, then I recommend, if you don't have it already, my free ebook, Our Enemy the Fed. And you can pick that up at OurEnemyTheFed.com. See you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.